So my very first day in India, the very first day of my pilgrimage, I find myself working with the goddess that I was told two and a half years ago that I wasn't ready for. I find myself working with an energy that I was told when the time is right, I would know and I would be ready. And I have no idea what I'm about to go through with this initiation with Kali on day one of my journey. But if you know anything about Kali energy, you know that she is fierce and that she is fierce love at the same time. She is both the fires of destruction and the winds of peace and calm. And I learn how to navigate all of her energy and her embrace throughout my three and a half weeks with this group. Namaste, and welcome to the Follow Your Path podcast. I'm your host, Vina Lene Rachel. I'm a moon priestess, intuitive, emotional alchemist, and channeler of the divine, and I've been diving into the world of the spiritual and metaphysical for over a decade now to self-heal my own trauma, become more emotionally stable, and cultivate my manifestation magic. I am so excited to now be bringing these same tools and techniques to you on this channel. There are a variety of ways for us to work on our higher selves. We can use practices like yoga, meditation, and breath work. We can receive energy work, crystal healing, or pull to row and oracle cards. We can call on our angels, ancestors, spirit guides, spirit animals, or more. Or maybe we find more alignment with astrology and the moon. I'm going to hold space for it all here on this channel. As you navigate each episode, I hope you find the guidance and wisdom you need to find your own path of self-healing and magic. May you become confident and courageous enough to continue to follow the path that best serves you. Thank you so much for tuning into this channel and trusting me to be a part of your unique journey. It truly is an honor to do this work and be here. Let's dive into today's episode. Namaskar friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we are continuing my journey into India my initiation into a profound transformation. And today I'll be sharing my experience stepping into the Ganges for the first time and also stepping into an Indian Hindu temple for the first time. But before we go there, I have to talk about the goddess Kali. So the first time I ever heard of Kali, I was actually told that I wasn't ready to work with her yet. So if you go back to some of my previous episodes, I talk about why I chose this voyage to India. And one of the reasons was pure inspiration from my own teachers. So I heard about my teacher's 
own journeys through India at my yoga teacher training and through that became inspired to travel to India myself. But also at that yoga teacher training at the end of it, my teachers gave me words of advice and guidance. They told me to soften into my feminine. And they said that this would greatly transform me and my practice and my energy. And so going on this sublime Shakti pilgrimage, Shakti being divine feminine energy, I'm finding it interesting that on day one of my journey, I'm stepping into a Kali temple. So going back to my teacher training, being told that I'm not ready to work with Kali yet. One of my teachers, Ganga, she gives me a mantra to work with at the end of my training. And this mantra, as she tells me, yeah, I just don't think you're ready to work with with Kali yet. She's thinking about this goddess energy that she's wanting me to infuse within myself, cultivate within myself. So she comes up with this mantra embracing Durga, Lakshmi, and Parvati instead. And she tells me that when the time is right, I'll know when I should be working with Kali. Now, at this time, at that time, I didn't know anything about Hinduism or the Hindu gods and goddesses. So I was told that Kali was just a little bit too dark for me, too heavy for me, too intense for me, and I just wasn't ready for it. So flash forward two and a half years down the road, and now I'm going on this divine spiritual journey through the feminine, and I'm stepping into a Kali temple. So my very first day in India, the very first day of my pilgrimage, I find myself working with the goddess that I was told two and a half years ago that I wasn't ready for. I find myself working with an energy that I was told when the time is right, I would know and I would be ready. And I have no idea what I'm about to go through with this initiation with Kali on day one of my journey. But if you know anything about Kali energy, you know that she is fierce and that she is fierce love at the same time. She is both the fires of destruction and the winds of peace and calm. And I learn how to navigate all of her energy and her embrace throughout my three and a half weeks with this group. So I want to back up and talk about a couple of notes from my previous episode discussing my first day in India. First thing I want to talk about is respecting culture and cultural appropriation or not having cultural appropriation in what we do. I mentioned on the trip that when I'm flying to Delhi, I have a connection in Istanbul. And I mentioned that while I'm there, I'm doing yoga, but also I'm feeling a little uh, 
insecure and uncomfortable because every other woman in the connecting terminal is covered from head to toe, including their face. I also mentioned that when I get into Delhi, that I have a little bit of a struggle with customs. It's a little bit of sexism coming out to play. But I also want to backtrack and mention that when I was in Istanbul, when I was in my, uh, when I was going through my layover, I actually changed my attire. So yes, I did do yoga in the terminal. It's not like I was in a sports bra and shorts. I was actually in uh, pretty respectful, comfortable. I was in like loose baggy pants. I was in a shirt that covered my sleeves. In fact, I was probably wearing like a hoodie on top of it. I can't remember, but I was very covered with my body, no tight fitting clothing, um, everything covered. But I also changed into more India appropriate attire before I flew into India. So I was actually wearing like a Samwar kameez and um, comfortable like baggy pants like you would wear in India dressed very appropriately for a woman. So the treatment that I was getting at customs (laughs) in Delhi at the airport, it wasn't because of the way I was dressed. It was almost most definitely because I was a woman and American and white and just a combination of things. But just a side note, I just wanted to put that out there. You know, when I travel, I try very much to be respectful and blend in. I've studied abroad in Italy in the past when I was in college, and I've been to the Vatican, and I've been in some other uh, churches in, in, in Italy, and I've, you know, had to cover my shoulders or wear a shawl or whatnot. So I get the playing the part and dressing the way you're supposed to, depending on where you are couple of other notes from my previous episode. I mentioned the taxi fiasco, you know, having to pay for a taxi and uh, not expecting that. And also just coming out of the airport, not having somebody with a sign to show me that I'm there and I have to call to figure out that somebody's there to pick me up. Well, that wasn't the case for everybody on the trip. A few people arriving actually didn't see a sign or a name because there wasn't one and they didn't call and they didn't get the memo or they couldn't reach anybody. And so they ended up just taking a taxi on their own to the hotel address that was in our email. So we did have an email with, you know, contact information, phone number, hotel address in Calcutta, you know, all the logistics. And that's how I had the phone number to call uh, Partha to, to call this contact to know that somebody was there to pick me up at the airport. But some people didn't call. They just took a taxi to the address and the address of the hotel or the hotel itself, I'm not sure if it was both or one of the other, they were incorrect. The information was incorrect in our email. And a couple of people got driven around in Calcutta by a taxi for nearly an hour or longer trying to find this hotel where we were staying. So despite my hiccups and travels, a little bit of an unexpected journey with a taxi, uh, some people had it a lot worse. And luckily, everybody did eventually find our hotel and get there at the same spot. But 
yikes, I, uh, I was feeling bad <laughs> for some of those other people that had to go through that. Um, I'll also just side note, I did not get bed bugs. You know, I had those anxieties about getting bed bugs from the hotel. I did not get bed bugs. Everything was all good. And also my roommate was really cool, a really nice gal. And at the very end of the pilgrimage, I actually end up going to Agra with her. She actually tags along with me to Delhi and to Agra to go see the Taj Mahal. And we have a really good time. But even on day one, we're thrown into the same room and into the same bed together. And my bedmate actually turns out to be a really cool girl that I connect with on the journey. I want to begin talking about this day two journey by first reading the very last thing I wrote and shared on my India journey. And this is where I've left off before and where I've always stopped and chosen to not continue sharing my story. Now, good news is I'm not going to stop today, but I want to start here because what I wrote really has a lot of meaning in my second day of India. And by the way, I am recording this part of the episode at a completely different time from what I just recorded. So if my voice sounds different or things sound a little different, that's probably why. Okay, this is what I wrote about day two of my India journey. Trust is a theme I must embrace here. As we head to our first temple, I trust I am meant to be on this journey. We sit down as a group for breakfast at a roadside restaurant. It's more like a large open-ended food stand with a menu I don't really understand. We order family style as a group, and I trust the food will nourish me and keep me healthy. I use my instincts and stick to chai and bottled water to drink. Breakfast is delicious and incredibly cheap. With bellies full, We head to the Dakshineshwar Kali Temple, our first destination on our pilgrimage. I am asked to check in my things, including my phone, and wash my feet in the Ganges before entering. I trust that my personal belongings will be there when I return. And I trust that my luggage will be waiting around on the bus as I leave it. I approach the river. I didn't think this process would affect me that much, I thought it would feel routine to what we were supposed to be doing, but it was so much more. Words cannot describe what it feels like to step into the Ganges for the first time. There is a vibration in her waters that is ancient and pure. The moment I dipped my toes into her waters, I felt pure emotional release. We start to recite a chant of which I have no idea what I am saying but I can feel the strength of the purification washing over me. Tears start to fall down my face. All of a sudden, I feel like I have reached a much-needed destination, like I have been trying to get here for lifetimes, and it's finally happening. I feel as if I am home. I come back to my mantra of trust. I trust that I am supposed to be on this journey. I trust that I am safe and supported here. I trust in my calling to be here. I trust that all guidance and wisdom will come through this journey. 
I trust I am being held in Ma's embrace. I trust. I trust. I trust. We finish our chant and I take a deep breath. I wipe the tears away and turn around to leave the river. And I step into the doors of the temple. So this is where I've always stopped when it comes to sharing my India journey. That blog post, I've copied it and used it as a social media post, but that post is where I've always stopped. Right before I step into my very first Hindu temple. And I've mentioned this in a couple of previous episodes, including the replay of my moon circle, if you want to go check that out. But I've been reflecting on why I always stop at this place in the journey. And I basically did the same thing here with the podcast. So I've taken the past week or so to contemplate that and figure out why I always stop right there. Why I don't continue on, even though I want to share my journey. For some reason, I always limit myself on day two. Well, what's come to me is that Day one and two of India were quite shocking to me. There was a lot of culture shock and I've traveled around the world and I've, I've even been to South America. I've been to some more third world places, but people will tell you who have visited India, if you have not been, there's nothing to describe it until you've actually been there. And there was a lot of culture shock. There was a lot of shock of just expectations and things, you know, like walking out of the airport and not having somebody there to pick me up with a sign me having to figure that out all of a sudden, you know, having to share a bed with somebody the first night was kind of shocking as well. There was just a lot of shock, culture shock and shock and a lot of process on the trip. And anytime we go through a shocking moment or a traumatic moment, we tend to block it out in our memory. We have memory blackout. And that's what's been going on with me, to be honest. I really had to go back and read through my journal. There were days of my trip that I was starting to blend together. I couldn't remember what was what. Now, of course, it was five years ago. But still, I, for some reason, couldn't gather around the events of my second day and put them all together. And one of the reasons is because we did come back to Calcutta on part of our trip. So halfway through our trip, or maybe even longer than that, but we do come back through Calcutta. So I was trying to remember what we visited when. And it was all kind of running together. But I've taken some time now and I've fully reflected on those first few days and all the shock that I went through. And I've had a lot of insight and wisdom come through as well. But with that, I've also had all of the memories come up so I can finally move forward and share my experience with you. So let's start with the beginning of my day two, waking up next to a stranger. (laughs) I have to say that my bedmate uh, was pretty amazing. We actually meshed really well. We end up really uh, becoming good acquaintances on the trip. Uh, She ends up traveling with me at the very end to go see the Taj Mahal. And uh, it's just nice because when we wake up, I notice that we both have our own practices that we do, you know, spiritual or personal development practices. It's nice to have that with somebody to, if you're going to be sharing a room or sharing a bed with somebody, it's 
hopefully somebody that's on a similar vibration as you. And she certainly was. So we start our day off with our practices and getting ready and we pack up all our things because we're not going to be in Calcutta anymore, at least not for now. And we head downstairs to the uh, group at the lobby of the hotel and we pack up in our little travel van and we head out to our first destination. But before we do, we have to stop and get some breakfast. We actually go ahead and park near the Kali temple that we're planning to visit. This is our first pilgrim site. And just outside of the temple, there's a, I'll put it in quotations, what they call a restaurant. It's more like a shack on the side of the road with tables and chairs. And in the very back, there's a little uh, stove and people are cooking but definitely not a place you would probably pick to eat in America. (laughs) But the theme of my trip is trust, right? Our Brahmin priest, Partha, is very familiar with the area. He tells us that this is a good place to eat. A lot of us don't even understand what's on the menu, and so he ends up just ordering family style for us, and it actually becomes one of my favorite Indian breakfasts. And it's called Sabja Puri. I've tried to find it here in America. It's it's called different things. Puri is the type of bread, P-O-O-R-I. It's like this fry bread and they give you this sauce that you dip it in. I don't know what it is. It's delicious. It's amazing. I eat a ton of it with chai and bottled water. And with bellies full, I'm ready with the group to step into our first Kali temple. Now, before we can actually enter the temple, we have to first check in all of our belongings and we have to wash our feet in the Ganges. So this means that I have to hand over all of the personal belongings that I have on me, including my cell phone, my shoes. (laughs) You know, you talk about trust when you are handing over these belongings along with probably 50 plus other people to this sketchy lockier area outside of a temple I just held trust and trusted that I would give everything back that I was in a holy place that people have good intentions so I check in all my things and I gather with the group and we start taking our steps down to the Ganges so this particular temple in Calcutta It's the Dakshineshwar Kali Temple. It was founded by Ramakrishna and Sharada Devi, and they were around in about the mid-1800s. This is a temple devoted to the form of Kali known as Bhavaturini, and there's also 12 Shiva temples and a Vishnu temple here as well. It's a pretty powerful place, and a really important place when you're on a Mecca or spiritual pilgrimage in Hindu culture, Hindu tradition. So it's important that we're clean, that we're not bringing in technology into these places, that we're, you know, purifying ourselves before we come into the doors of the holy place. So we gather together and we step down into the Ganges and we have a little bit of an offering with some flowers. And Partha starts leading us through a chant and I have no idea what I'm saying because of course it's in Hindu <laughs> or maybe Sanskrit and we just follow along 
and we're saying this chant and I think it's just going to be this routine thing that we're doing, right? I don't really think much of it, but as I'm chanting and I'm holding these flowers and my feet are in the Ganges, this vibration, it comes over me and I get very emotional and I all of a sudden feel like I'm in this place that I was meant to be my entire life. It's like I'm home. And we finish our chant. I have tears running down my face. I put my flowers into the river as devotion. And we start to make our way into the temple. By the way, this part of the Ganges that we're stepping into, it's known as the Kaligat in uh, some of the mythological texts. It is actually known as the Hooghly River in modern times. It's the eastern distributary of the Ganges. So we are still stepping into the Ganges. It just might be a different name. If you're looking at it on a map, you might see Hooghly River or Kaligat instead. So I step into the doors of this temple and the moment I do, I feel this intense vibration, very different from the Ganges and the waters that I was just in. It's kind of this destructive yet nurturing vibration. And it's funny how, you know, up until this point in my life, Kali has been hidden to me. She was somebody that I wasn't ready to work with five years before two years before, sorry. And now all of a sudden she's just here fully exposed to me on my very first day of my pilgrimage. So we journey through the temples. We kind of explore the grounds. We check out Ramakrishna's bedroom and Sharada Devi's bedroom. And then we also have the opportunity to receive puja or a blessing, a spiritual blessing, as we line up to stare into the eyes of the deity, the goddess of the Kali idol. So we're asked to give a little bit of money. It's not much at this point. I mean, in American dollars, it's probably not even a dollar, might be a little bit more, a little bit less. And we're given this offering that we're going to be taking, some flowers and things that we're going to be taking to the deity and the idol. And when it comes my turn to pass the um, offering over, the priest takes it and puts it onto the idol and uh, puts a little dot of something on my third eye and his hands on my head and throws some water on me and all kinds says all kinds of things and blesses me and then allows me to look into the eyes of the Kali statue or the Kali goddess. And again, I just think this is going to be some routine thing. You know, I'm not a devout Hindu. This doesn't mean the same thing to me as somebody else. This is more of an exploratory journey for me. But the moment I stare into those eyes, I feel this piercing love. It's like I feel Kali come into me. She enters me and I feel her starting to slay all of these internal demons inside of me. It's hard to explain, but the moment I stared into those eyes, I realized that not only is Kali within me and around me and protecting me, but she is me. 
She is me and I am her. I am these different forms of the goddess, both the loving and destructing energy, both the fierce and the nurturing energy. It's all ma. It's all Shakti. And it's all within me. So after I have this experience receiving puja, I visit the rest of the temples on the grounds. There's a Vishnu temple. And Vishnu is very um, important to the story of Shakti and the pilgrimage that I'm on. And I'll talk about that a little bit later in this podcast. This temple also has 12 Shiva temples within it with Shiva lingams inside and there's six on one side and six on the other and it's traditional to go in a circle uh, anywhere in a count of three so three or maybe nine times around each of those temples so I circled three times around each of the 12 temples just walking in a little circle taking everything in they're quite small it only takes 10-20 seconds to circle each And uh, after I circle and take in all the energy and feel like I've received what I need to receive, I wait for the rest of the group to meet up so that we can move on to our next destination. By the way, one insight that I have right away in this temple on this first real day of my spiritual pilgrimage, I realize that I need to be held in both the masculine and the feminine. Because I'm here on this Shakti spiritual pilgrimage, I'm here to discover my own feminine energy within. And yet on the first day, when we step into a temple, there is both Shiva and Vishnu energy with the Kali energy. This is about balance. We can't be too much in our feminine or too much in our masculine. We have to learn to balance both. And I realize on this first part of my journey that I'm going to need both the embrace of Kali or Shakti and Shiva or Vishnu. I will need to learn how to journey through both energies as I discover more. The next stop on our pilgrimage is the Adyapith Mandir of Calcutta. And this is another Hindu temple. It's known as a Shakti Peeth, which is a place where a piece of Devi's body fell to the earth after she died. And if you don't know anything about Hinduism, you're probably wondering, what? What, what do you mean by that? Well, the easiest way to tell you is to tell a story. So there are many Hindu mythological stories around Shakti Peets and how they came about. But one of the main ones involves Shiva and Sati. So Lord Shiva had a wife or consort in uh, Sati. But Sati's father did not approve of Lord Shiva. Sati's father wanted her to marry Lord Vishnu and not Lord Shiva. And so he, long story short, creates this fire ceremony and basically holds a big party 
and invites everyone to come, all the gods and goddesses. And he does invite Sati, but he does not invite Lord Shiva. And Sati goes to her father's party and fire ceremony because it is her father. But when she arrives, all her father does the whole time is talk bad about Shiva, her consort, and ridicules him and humiliates him. And he's trying to convince Sati to choose Lord Vishnu instead. And Sati, having such a devout love for Lord Shiva, being so upset at her father for ridiculing her lover, she self-sacrifices and throws herself into the fire. And when Lord Shiva hears about this, he comes to the party. He scoops Sati's body up out of the fire and he starts to mourn her death. And so he starts to carry out what's known as the Tendava. And it's a dance of destruction. And basically he is carrying Sati's body in his arms. He's dancing all over the earth. He's sobbing big tears. And wherever the tears fall, by the way, that's where Rudraksha trees grow, supposedly. So he's basically destroying the earth because of his grief, because he has lost his love. And finally, the gods come together and they say, we have to do something about this or Shiva is going to destroy the earth over this grief. So Lord Vishnu intervenes. He comes in and he cuts Sati's body into different parts. Supposedly, there's 51 to 52 parts, depending on the interpretation. And this way, Sati's body starts to fall apart and land in different places of the earth and Shiva can no longer carry her body around and mourn in grief. And supposedly where each part of Devi's body fell, where each part of Sati's body or the goddess's body fell, there is a sacred site now known as a Shakti Peeth. And the Adya Peeth, Mandir in Calcutta is supposedly where the toes of Devi's right foot fell. The Adyapith Mandir of Calcutta was established around 1915. So it's been around for a little over 100 years. And it embodies Ramakrishna. It also embodies a form of Kali known as Ma Adya or Adya Ma. And then it displays uh, statues of Radha and Krishna. So when we arrive at the temple, before we actually go to the temple, we visit the Sangha. And the Sangha here actually cares for a lot of orphans in the area. They take care of over 700 orphans. They provide uh, food and services to the poor, health services, um, living services. They're basically in an act of service at this temple and at this Sangha. And when we visit, they are also in an act of service to us as pilgrims going on our sacred spiritual journey. So in Indian culture or in Hindu culture and tradition, many people that are on a spiritual path or a spiritual journey or they're living a devout spiritual life, they are typically 
relying on the public to survive. They rely on the public to give them food, shelter, clothing, basically to survive because they have given up all of their belongings in devotion of God. So as arriving at this Sangha, being spiritual pilgrims, the Maharaj of the Sangha wanted to bless us and feed us and support us on our spiritual path. So we were able to receive a blessing, a food blessing at the Sangha. It's known as a prashad or prashadam. And in addition to that, we were actually fed a whole meal served by the people that are living at the temple. The food was absolutely amazing. So far on my journey, all of the food has been amazing, including the food on my flight from Istanbul to Delhi. The food that they fed us on our flight was really good. My first night in Calcutta, we ate family style. It was delicious. The breakfast I ate outside of the temple this day was amazing. And now the food that they've given us in the Sangha is again delicious. It's Lots of rices and breads and then different types of, like I would almost describe it like a brothy soup or porridge. There's different types of sauces with vegetables in them. It's all vegetarian and absolutely delicious. So after we eat our meal, we are, I can't remember if it was before or after our meal actually, but at some point when we're in the Sangha, the uh, orphaned girls come through and greet us and say hi to us and it does make me feel a little privileged not gonna lie it makes me feel a little sad all of the orphans were girls by the way because in indian culture a lot of times uh, boys and men are respected more than girls and women so a lot of times when a family has a girl they can end up out on the street, they can end up as an orphan, they can end up in sex work, unfortunately. It's a real shame, but it is the culture and it is the way there. So this Sangha in Calcutta actually takes care of over 700 orphans and most of those are going to be girls. Now, being on a spiritual pilgrimage, a Shakti spiritual pilgrimage, the majority of our group was women. We only had three men on our trip. One is Partha, our Brahmin priest and kind of organizer and leader of the trip. And then we had two other gentlemen in the group with us. One of them was there with his girlfriend and the other came on his own journey. But I really enjoyed the fact that these girls, these orphan girls could see us women thriving and being respected and being shown the love and attention that we actually would deserve instead of feeling shamed for who we are as a woman or being looked down on because we were a woman. We were actually, as women, invited into this temple, into this sangha. We were welcomed on our spiritual journey. We received prashad and blessing. We were fed. and. If anything, for all of those little girls to witness that, that gives me hope and that puts light in my heart because they can witness that there is another life for them, that there is another side for them and that it's perfectly okay to be a girl 
and to be a woman. And there's nothing shameful about it. It's actually quite beautiful and magical. So after we eat and receive our blessings and visit with the orphan children, we went to the Goshala, which is the cow sanctuary on the grounds. Now, I don't know if you know this about India, but cows roam wild. There are roaming cows everywhere you go, just like if you would go to a city and maybe see the occasional cat or chickens in Hawaii, or maybe you're down in South America and you're seeing goats running around and pigs and whatnot. Um, In India, there are cows everywhere, just roaming. And yes, some families have, most families have a cow that it kind of roams during the day and comes back home and whenever it's done with its day. But there are also a lot of uh, feral cows, just like there are feral cats all over America in big cities. Um, There are feral cows all over India. And India is not the cleanest country in the world. There are a lot of uh, places where it is very dirty. There's a lot of garbage, especially in Calcutta, you know, a a city of 20-something million people. There is a lot of trash. And the cows will eat everything, including the trash. So they actually keep the cows locked up in this sanctuary for their safety and for their health. And at first glance, you might think that it's not the greatest place for them. You know, it's concrete. It's like this big concrete barn with concrete stalls that they're all hanging out in. But the truth is they actually get walked every single day. The cows get walked out on the grass, out on the roads, Every single day, if not multiple times a day, they roam free within their goshala, within all of those little concrete uh, barriers and whatnot. They roam free within there. And they are very loved, very taken care of. In Hindu tradition, the cow is the vehicle that Lord Shiva used to ride around on. And so cows are sacred and cows are holy and therefore they are loved and treated very well. And at the time of this trip, I had just started diving into my world of veganism and vegetarianism. And so visiting the Golshala was probably one of my favorite parts of my entire pilgrimage, being able to just hang out with the cows and love on the cows and see how well they are treated and how much uh, people wanna take care of them and save them and give them a good quality life really, really lights up my heart. And talk about a total 180 from the West, right? Where we're all, many of us are eating cow almost every day and cows are enclosed and not running wild and definitely aren't treated the same way. So yes, the Goshala was probably one of my favorite places in India. Now there's also a temple at the Adyapith Mandir, although it was closed at the time we were visiting, so we weren't able to actually go inside or see the deities. But inside of the temple, on the bottom level, there is a Ramakrishna idol. Um, in the middle, there is an Adyama deity. And then at the top, there's Radha and Krishna. And although we couldn't see it, we couldn't, the doors weren't open, we couldn't see the temple, when you're at different parts of the Goshala, you're actually 
right in front of the temple you're facing it and so you can stand there and take in the temple and receive the vibrations and even though the doors weren't open even though i didn't get to see the goddesses in person i certainly could feel the energy that was there so after we finish visiting the cows and taking in the energy of the kali temple and the adyapith mandir grounds we prepare to go on to our next destination. Now, what do you always do before you go on a long car trip? <laughs> you go before you go, right? So I head to the bathrooms, the restrooms, and this is my very first experience in a real Indian uh, bathroom situation. Now at the hotel, at the airports, everywhere we've been so far, there is a normal Western toilet. Everything is pretty normal as far as a bathroom goes. Not so much at the temple. <laughs> so I go in to use the restroom with some of the people from my group and there are uh, stalls. There are separate stalls, like wooden dividers in between no doors. There are, I think there was one toilet in one of the far stalls, you know, in case you gotta, gotta poop, I guess. I don't know, <laughs> but it didn't have a door either. And then uh, the rest of the stalls, there's pretty much just a hole in the ground and there's definitely not any toilet paper. And I have already been told that I need to bring, I was warned in advance before I even went to India, I was told to bring toilet paper, and I also brought Norwex cloths, body cloths, just to um, help keep things sanitary. So thankfully, I do have some of my own toilet paper, and I use this after I'm finished. And by the way, if you did not have toilet paper, there is a, a little cup next to you in each of the stalls, and there's a little faucet of water, and you use that as a little makeshift bidet situation. And what about what about number two, you're asking, if you, if you don't know about this? Well, in Indian culture, one of your hands is used for everything as far as eating and shaking hands and receiving your prashad and your blessings. The other hand is your toilet paper. <laughs> so you also use all that water to wipe and wash and, and whatever. But luckily, I don't have to go number two. I have toilet paper for number one, all is well. But I will learn that this is pretty much the bathroom setup wherever you go, um, unless you're in like a nicer place. You know, in India, business is business. You you handle it and you move on. It's really not a big deal. And uh, even later in my trip, I will actually see whole fields where men and women will go to take care of their business at bigger events. like. There's not a big porta potty lineup like there are in a lot of other events in like Europe or America. There's no porta potties, there's just a field, and that's where the people go. <laughs> and even in our own group, we end up in a field later on in the day, but I'll get to that in just a minute. So we pile up in our van, we head to our next destination. We've actually got quite a bit of a drive ahead of us. We're headed out of Calcutta. We're going into West Bengal. We're headed back to Partha's village. And there is another um, 
sacred pilgrim site there as well. There's another Shakti Peeth and temple. So we're headed that way in our travel van. And I actually really enjoy the drive because we're not out of uh, the city for too long when things start to change and we move into more of a country setting. It seems more uh, countryside, village type of setup everywhere. And it's a lot less of that hustle and bustle. There's not a lot of cars on the road. There are definitely random cows in the middle of the highway and all over the place. But as far as a lot of traffic or people, it's a lot less, a lot more chill. About halfway through our drive, we do stop uh, to grab chai. And I soon learned that this is a thing. This is a thing in Indian culture, just like you would probably stop for a hot coffee on a long drive here in America. In India, you stop for a hot chai. So we stop and, you know, grab some snacks and grab some chai and use the bathroom and, you know, do whatever we need to do and head along our way. And the chai starts to hit several of the people in our group and they quickly realize they're not going to make it to our destination before they have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and there's that pit stop I just talked about. So we literally stop on the side of the road near a field and I don't need to go, but several people in my group definitely go in a field on the side of the road, letting go of modesty, getting to know each other and doing it Indian style. As we move more and more out of the city, we start to actually move through villages. We start to drive through different villages along our way. And it's funny because every time we hit a village, it seems like we are no longer on a road. We are almost in an alleyway between buildings sometimes. Occasionally we have to stop because there's a cow standing in the way and we've got to honk and get it to move. Um, people are so, so close. I am I'm very impressed with the driving in India from the get-go, from the time I hit the taxi out of the airport. Very impressed because the way that drivers interweave among all of the people and cows and chickens and animals and chaos, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> So we weave in and out of these villages. It's getting darker and darker. I wonder if we're ever going to get there. And we finally arrive. We arrive in a small village known as Bakwashwar. And we're going to be staying at the ashram there. And we're actually the very first women to stay in the ashram, which is quite a privilege, quite a big deal. So feeling, feeling very grateful for that. A couple of people on the group are staying at a local hotel. And I put hotel in quotations because I'm not sure. Um, it's, it's not a hotel. We are in a village, like literally in an Indian village. If you could imagine the word village and what you think about that, you're probably correct. There is not a hotel. <laughs> I soon learn again that... Indian hotels a lot of times are homestays in smaller areas. They're a family's home that they've opened up maybe the second or third story to travelers, to pilgrims and whatnot, kind of like an Airbnb. So a couple of people in the group are going to stay at the hotel, but guess what? They end up back at the ashram 
the next day because, yeah, they're not going to stay there. <laughs> and the ashram itself is, it's very simple. It is a, basically like a Hindu monastery. If you don't know what an ashram is, it is a holy place. It is where uh, devout Hindus come to be holy, to be on their spiritual path, maybe to study more, um, no different than uh, like nuns or being in a monastery or something like that. So it's a very simple building, but we have westernized bathrooms. We have a shower with hot running water. The hot water tank is right above the toilet and it's very small, but we have hot water. We have nice bedrooms with two beds each, so I don't have to share a bed. And I have a different roommate this time, a, a girl from Australia. She's super nice. She's been traveling through India, so I get to kind of pick her brain for a while and listen to her journey. But our beds themselves, I'm pretty sure they're stuffed with some sort of straw or hay. <laughs> Not the most luxurious bed, but we're in a holy place and we're meant to have a simple life here. We're meant to not have a lot of luxury or attachment. We're devoting our time to God or the holy instead. And I've actually completely satisfied with this setting. I am satisfied with the straw-filled bed, the concrete floors, the simple ashram life because it's very peaceful. You know, you are in a village. It's quiet. There's not a lot of noise around. Um, you just feel like you're in a holy place and you are. It's a it's a mecca for spiritual pilgrims. There's a temple there and there's a there's another holy place there and you can just feel the energy. Our rooms are kind of separated, kind of like a dormitory style. And when you walk out into the main common area, that's where we get together for our yoga or to hang out and to eat. And we do get fed our first night. And again, all vegetarian, all amazing and delicious. Similar food to what we have been eating so far. It's kind of like breads and maybe naans and rotis and things like that with different uh, vegetables and broths and sauces, a little bit of rice. I'm noticing things like chickpeas a lot, uh, black-eyed peas, green beans, lots of peppers, tomatoes, uh, really, really good food. And, you know, the food at the ashram, not only is it prepared vegetarian and prepared locally with local ingredients, but it's blessed. It's blessed food, right? And you can feel that. You can feel the prana and you can feel the energy whenever you're eating it. Side note, by the way, you eat with your hands in Indian culture. Not everywhere. If you're in a more modernized place or if you're in a city, you're probably be, uh, you'll probably be given silverware. But in traditional culture, you eat with your hands. And so I'm eating with my hands here in India, and I have for multiple meals now. And the reason that you do that is your hands contain prana, or I guess I should say that you eat with your hand, right? The hand that you're supposed to eat with, not that dirty hand. But uh, you eat with your hand because you have prana, life force energy in your hands connected to your heart chakra. And so you're connecting your prana to the prana of the food. The prana of the food is connecting to you. It's actually a more fulfilling experience when you eat with your hands. So. I am eating this holy food with my hands. I'm pretty sure that I could eat seven helpings of it 
And it's funny because every time we clear out a section of our plate, the um, the spiritual devotees at the ashram, they're asking us if we want more. They're trying to serve us more and more and more. And I soon learned that in Indian culture, they're going to serve you until you literally put your hand over and say like, no, thank you. No, thank you. Because they want you to eat. They want you to be full. They want you to be on this journey and be and be fulfilled along the way. So they will serve and serve and serve you. And I definitely took my two to three helpings of things after a long day in India. But I finally said I was full (laughs) and decided to end my meal. So as I go to my room, me and my roommate, we kind of get to know each other. We uh, were just talking about India, talking about our lives. And all of a sudden, we hear chanting in the background outside. By the way, we have these like bars and screens on our windows to help with the mosquitoes and the bugs, but there's no air conditioning. (laughs) There's no air conditioning there and you don't need it. It's actually really lovely weather when we're there in November and December, but we can hear and see everything outside because of that. And we see this group of people marching down the street, ringing bells and shaking different things and playing drums and they're chanting Hari Krishna, right? Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Hari, Hari Krishna, Krishna, right? They're singing Hari Krishna. And it's like a little, it's like a little goodnight bhakti parade <laughs> around the ashram and in front of our room. So me and my roommate, we go to the window and we start chanting with them and they blow some whistles and hey, like yell at us. And, you know, even after they leave, you can just feel like this positive vibration lingering in the atmosphere. And I just feel like I'm at home again. I feel like this is where I need to be. I'm in a totally different culture. I don't know much of the language. I don't know much of the uh, spiritual practices, but yet I feel so in place and so at home. So as I end my, you know, second full night in India, I just take a moment to soak it all in. And I reflect back on, you know, this journey with Kali that I've just had my first day in India. And I start to realize that this Kali essence is within me as well. But Kali comes from a mother goddess known as Durga. And if you've gone back to some of my other podcasts, you know that I was told to chant, or maybe even this podcast, I can't remember now, but I was told to chant um, to Durga, Lakshmi, and Parvati. And now I'm working with Kali, who I was told I wasn't ready for back then. Well, Durga... Durga is that mother energy, and I had to work with that first. I had to mother myself and nurture myself. And then out of that, I also had to nurture and mother my inner Kali, my inner shadows and and darkness. And from that, I've learned how to, or I guess I'm learning how to in this journey, and now I have, but you know, through the journey, I'm learning how to also let the fierceness of Kali come through. You know, the rage when she needs to be destructive. I'm learning to mother that energy too. And then I'm also learning to, you know, set aside that energy when I need to, to be more with my consort, with my husband, with my masculine mirror, with my 
masculine energy with my family, with these other aspects of my life. But I have to learn to find the balance between the two. I can't be shamed for my rage and my fierceness and my destruction. But I also can't be that way all the time. There is not one without the other. And so I also have to learn to control my energy and maintain a peace and a calm and space for others, others in my life that I love, others in my life that are important to me, in addition to myself. So as I end my second day in India, I reflect on this journey that I'm being initiated into. I think about how much has come through already in just a couple of days. I can't imagine what else is going to come through. And so I say a little prayer of gratitude. I trust in the journey ahead. And I let myself rest and prepare for what's to come. I hope today's message served you. If you enjoy the Follow Your Path podcast, I would love for you to leave a review. As a thank you, every month I do a drawing from the reviews and I choose one person to win a free one hour, one-on-one soul coaching session with me. This can be done in person or online depending on where you are. I also feature reviews on my website and social media. So thank you for the feedback and the testimonials. It truly is an honor to be here. Thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to meeting with you again in the next episode.